0: This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin.
1: Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's Big Question, why do we create fantasy worlds? We're asking today's Big Question to Luke Isham. Luke works as the pastor of St Kilda and Balaclava Presbyterian Church in Melbourne's inner southeast. Luke is a huge fan of the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and the classic Lord of the Rings trilogy, And he joins me now, Luke, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thanks, Rob. But you are a massive Tolkien fan, apparently, and that that didn't even that influence the way that you conducted your wedding? Yeah, yeah. So
0: my wife Amy and I, we got married in 2003 in early December and then Amy wore her wedding dress um, as she was dressed up as an elvish princess to the 2003 Boxing Day premiere of The Return of the King because I dressed up previously for the first two movies.
1: Mm, okay, yeah. Well, it's great that you can join us today to talk about something that seems to be close to your heart, Luke, that you seem to enjoy a lot about. Um, and to kick off Bigger Questions, we like to ask some smaller questions just to get us thinking. Today we're asking Luke Isham why we create fantasy worlds. So, Luke, for our smaller questions today, I'm going to see how much you know about the Lord of the Rings movie series. Now, obviously, you've seems so like you watch them. You watch them with your wife dressed up as an Elvish princess. Just one question, and it's multiple choice. Okay, which of the three Lord of the Rings movies was the highest grossing at the box office? Was it A, part one, The Fellowship of the Ring, part two, The Two Towers, part three, The Return of the King, or D, they were pretty much all the same. They grossed about the same amount each. Which of the films was the highest grossing at the box office?
0: Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I mean, everyone was really excited about the first one. It mm-hmm. won't be the two towers because uh, that was the one in the middle. Yep. I think I'm going to have to go D because I Are can't all choose. About, all about the same. Yeah, because I can't choose between the first one and the last one. So.
1: Well, you're close because they were all roughly the same. They all grossed around a billion dollars each. Mm. But actually, C, part three, Return of the King, grossed US $1.14 where the other two films didn't quite get over the billion mark. So unfortunately, Luke, you thought you knew about the Lord of the Rings <laughs> yeah, movie. Yeah. Your knowledge has a little bit of a fantasy right. perhaps, but and yeah. if you had a live audience, we'd still give you a round of applause. Yeah. But Luke, it has been 20 years or so since the release of the first Lord of the Rings movies, The Fellowship of the Ring, on 19th of December, 2001. Now the series has been regarded as one of the most greatest and most influential film series ever made. Uh, The three films grossed nearly $3 US dollars and the books, Lord of the Rings books have sold over 100 million copies. What do you think makes the Lord of the Rings so popular?
0: They're a magnificent movie experience. Um, So Peter Jackson in an interview uh, around the time of the release of the Lord of the Rings says he's, you know, wanting to be faithful to the source material yeah so that attitude of the director kind of helps if he's wanting to be faithful to the source material although he's obviously very gifted with special effects and so the timing in sort of cinematic history was right he had the ability to bring it to life and then of course the setting in new zealand so the special effects the setting and peter jackson's kind of hey we're going to work with the source material was the sort of that makes it a magnificent um oh and also long form it was a long form series so we'd had blockbusters Mm. before that but um it it was entering the age of long form television um and and big movie franchises Um, so it was new that was new then and then i guess um we've had sort of two generations so when it came out in um uh, 2001 we had sort of two generations primed for watching it so you had the baby boomers because Lord of the Rings was originally published in the 1950s and then didn't really sort of take off. It was sort of a very niche, um, but really took off in the 60s, early 60s. Right. And so all the baby boomer sort of countercultural sort of reading it um, and, you know, enjoying reading about the Ents and sort of an anti-technological sort of progress message. And then all the Gen X read it as teenagers or play Dungeons and Dragons, so you had sort of baby boomers and Gen X primed, uh, like right. a, a, two generations of an audience just ready to watch it. Yeah, so they're probably the, t- the first two, and then the last reason is a little bit more. I don't know what you think of this one, but I think it expressed the background zeitgeist of of the times of you know two thousand and one.
1: What, what in particular about that times did it express?
0: Well, so you just had just 9-11 had just happened so the 90s was the American era and then the 9-11 marked that those attacks marked the end of that era and then God's Illusion was published in 2006 so the the next decade was sort of a secular decade so you had this kind of the rise of secularism the end of American sort of cultural dominance and so it was a sort of a the, the movies tapped into something happening at a deeper cultural level.
1: Okay. What what particularly did it tap into?
0: It tapped into this um, medieval worldview. So C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were both sort of medieval specialists in, in in different ways, and so they were sort of immersed in the medieval worldview. And The Lord of the Rings is this, well, the whole fantasy genre is sort of a medieval genre. Yeah. and But we live in a post-medieval time, so I think... That's what makes it sort of doubly fascinating. Is people were looking back at a, an old world view, and we live in a post-medieval worldview. So that that's what makes the genre of fantasy and Lord of the Rings so interesting.
1: Mm, okay, yeah. So then, what did you make of the film adaptations of the books? Then,
0: so they were released in Australia on Boxing Day, and so we we all dressed up and we were photographed on the front page of the local newspaper in Hobart, and <laughs> we booked out a, a cinema. Um, you know, got fifty of our friends to buy tickets and and all with the first ones in to you know yeah. and sort of watch the the first showing with everyone else in, in Australia on Boxing Day, and it was really exciting that that first Fellowship of the Ring because the trailers had kind of primed us to go this is this is faithful to the source material, and yeah, it was exciting to see the world that i because i'd grown up hearing my parents read it aloud the lord of the rings and the chronicles to us as kids so i'd i'd had it all in my mind and it was just wonderful to sort of see it brought to life but yeah peter jackson he's a um
1: he's the director
0: so by the end of it i wasn't as excited because it had started to become more of peter jackson's project and interpretation rather than a a retelling of lord of the rings a faithful retelling mm, of the story yeah that's right well
1: for example some of there were some characters that were completely not in the the movies that were in the books like for example tom bombadil uh who features in the the fellowship of the ring uh he's missing entirely no sorry for the spoiler alert but the films have been out for a while what do you make of those kind of changes it feels as though
0: the number of shortcuts kind of built up and because the lord of the rings is presenting a world a world view a way of thinking a genre um, you've got to kind of be presenting that genre,s pre- presenting that feeling cinematically, and mm. it, it felt like, that, yeah, Peter Jackson made some compromises, and you mentioned Tom Bombadil, and that's one of them that he he cut out Tom Bombadil.
1: So, what's lost then by, by losing Tom Bombadil? What do you think's lost?
0: Well, I think it loses a because Tom Bombadil's a he's a character that's sort of immune to the effects of the ring. So, the ring has this. Um, but we're doing spoilers. So it has this power, uh, There's evil power, and everybody who comes into contact with it is affected by it in some way, that negatively, or has to work hard at resisting it. And Tom Bombadil is immune to it because he's this sort of creature from another world in Middle-earth, and that little vignette, that little moment is sort of the medieval worldview because it's a creature from another world in our world and mm. yeah, that was a, that would have been a normal way of thinking for the medieval people is to think of this
1: right. But you're saying that that's not necessarily the way that Peter Jackson thinks, or reflective of our culture. And so, hence, some of those sort of more supernatural kind of characters, so to speak, don't seem to make it into the world of the yeah. modern Lord of the Rings, so to speak.
0: here's a better example, actually. Here's a better example. So you have Frodo and Samwise Gamgee. They're mm-hmm. the so so the two main sort of hobbits that have to take the ring to mount doom and there's a bit that jackson took out in the return of the king about samwise Gamgee, and he takes the ring for 24 hours and there's this really fascinating chapter at the beginning of the fellowship of the ring where he has the ring and is he puts he puts it on and starts using it a little bit and he's tempted and it's this really powerful moment of Mm. an ordinary person dealing with massive evil and the events all around that are really exciting is that spider shelob and and it's in mordor and it's really intense but jackson cuts that out now he obviously it was just too much to put in the film but that's a really good example of tolkien's worldview and the medieval worldview it shows that even though Jackson was a great director and and worked hard and it's a cinematic masterpiece, there's something in Tolkien's worldview that um, he compromised on.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. And that, you said that that's to do with this medieval world. Can you mm. unpack that a bit more?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, the medieval worldview, so a really good sort of introduction to that is The Discarded Image by C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. was a, um, a another professor that, uh, lived and wrote at the same time as Tolkien, and the, sort of the the two key things of the medieval worldview is a storyline. So we're part of a story. Where where um to go back one step in the ancient world, a story happened to you. So if you read Herodotus and those type of guys, it's about the story just happens and happens to you. Whereas the judo Christian view is that we're participants in the story and so obviously the medieval world was a judo christian world and um we're participants in that story and so that's part of the medieval worldview and the other part of the medieval worldview is a sort of a everything has a symbolic structure for example everything has kind of layers of meaning and you see this in the lord of the rings this not just that we're participants in the story but that Everything is sort of multi-layered. It has Mm. depth in all directions.
1: Mm. Tolkien did have Christian convictions and was committed to the Bible. So how much did that influence what he wrote?
0: Oh, yeah, massively. Because I I think the Lord of the Rings is a, well, let's go back a step. So the gospel is a theodicy. So how Mm -hmm. and why do evil coexist in the world? And the Lord of the Rings is a theodicy.
1: Yeah, unpack that. What, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? How is the Lord of the Rings a theodicy or an explanation of evil in the world?
0: Yeah, so you you, you want to have an explanation that scales. So how does how do you, as a you as an individual deal with evil, good and evil? How does it coexist in your own life, and then in your neighbors' lives, and then in the world around you? So whatever explanation you have, say for the world around you, it has, needs to also make sense for your neighbors and yourself. and and the other way as well, if you've got an explanation for yourself of good and evil, then it needs to make sense for your neighbours in the world. And so so you could say that's depth and the Lord of the Rings has depth and it's a theodicy with depth. So you have a cosmic struggle, you know, the forces of Mordor versus, you know, Gandalf and the the, the sort of the the ragtag alliance that he's putting together. You've got that cosmic struggle, but then you've also got Frodo and Sam struggling, you know, with escaping enemies and finding food and making their way to Mount Doom, and Sam yeah. struggles with it, and then Frodo's struggles and failure. So you've got that. That's why it's it's, it's, it's a theodicy that works at different levels because you've got it happening in the story there's a cosmic
1: levels. level and then there's an individual level yeah, as well that's right bat- battling there yeah so but you yeah but with with tolkien's work though it's not a straight allegory that's right like some people would say it's an allegory or sort of an you know there, there are certain things that represent things in the real world Well, yeah. it kind of does that it's, it's not straight because for example there are different characters which seem to represent the christ character mm. so for example there's elements of frodo's quest which resonate with jesus life death and crucifixion and then there's gandalf's resurrect and aragorn is the one crowned king so is that deliberate?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think he's, yeah, he's, he's sort of the archetypes. So you've got sort of, mm-hmm. you know, Gandalf is a, you know, sort of Christ archetype. He fights the Balrog, dies, or has a type of death experience and then it has a type of resurrection experience. Mm. You could say Frodo and Sam sacrifice themselves, um, but none of them, yeah, map clearly onto Christ. So Frodo fails at the end. G- Gandalf isn't the one that destroys the ring. So there's there's sort of he's dealing with archetypes that and tropes that are that are Christian. Mm. He does drop some really sort of nerdy or geeky um Christian clues into the story because everything's very precise and you can create a timeline. So for right, example, yeah. the fellowship, that's that little group that Gandalf pulls together to travel to Mordor to destroy the ring. They start their journey from Rivendell on Christmas Day, the twenty fifth right. of December, and then the Ring is destroyed the next year on the twenty fifth of March, which is Annunciation, when um, the angels tell Mary that she's uh, carrying the Messiah, and so these these kind of that's a deliberate move of Tolkien. Right. I mean, Tolkien, a Roman Catholics, so love the the liturgical year. But that's the structure's kind of built in as a as a clue to, to the reader, you know, let the reader understand.
1: Yes. You mentioned before that uh, that fantasy genre and particularly Lord of the Rings represents a medieval worldview. Uh, and also that Tolkien wrote his book to represent a biblical worldview. Are you suggesting, therefore, that the Christian worldview is more associated with the medieval worldview or with or is it that means it's out of place perhaps in the modern world?
0: Yeah, yes. No, I, I, I like that question. Absolutely. Because talk, both Tolkien and Lewis fought in World War One. Yeah. And, um, and I think yeah, Tolkien was at the worst battle, the Battle of the Somme. I think that was the worst battle in World War One. And I think he got sick right after that battle and then was sent back and then Lewis was injured in a different battle by a shell fragment. And so they both had front row seats on World War One. Which was sort of the end of the was the end of the sort of progressive enlightenment so everything was getting better and better the industrial revolution was going to save us all um and things were just going to get more and more wonderful technology was going to make our lives better and better and then world war one came through and showed us that the horrible things you know followed by world war ii the horrible things that technology you know in the wrong hands can do and Mm. so yeah, they're they're both writing at this sort of crucial time in history, the end of, of of an era the beginning of another era. And going back to your original question, that's what makes the Lord of the Rings movies, because they come out at a sort of an interesting time of change in the change of mm. culture. So Tolkien and Lewis are seeing a a change in the culture, and mm. the Industrial Revolution was the the sort of the end of the medieval worldview, and now. I think what makes the Lord of the Rings still so relevant and important for Christians is it's this vehicle to understand and think about the medieval worldview. And it, you know, the medieval times weren't perfect, and there's you know, there's elements of, of, of that worldview that you can dig into that weren't quite right. But it's still a helpful way of thinking. It's a, a holistic way of thinking.
1: What about the medieval view that makes it helpful?
0: Yeah, I think it's that. Um, that symbolic structure to the world well the two things the story that we're participants Mm -hmm. in a story but then the other aspect is that everything has a a sort of a spiritual and a moral dimension to it and i don't know if how many of your listeners are fans of jordan peterson um, or not (laughs) um, but i think the reason of his popularity is he's kind of put his finger on there's a bit of a meaning crisis at the moment and we're sort of searching Mm. for meaning And I think the power of Lord of the Rings for Christians is we can go, well, here's a a fictional vehicle of a Christian worldview. And that's partly why the movies were so successful. It's it's a a wonderful vehicle for expressing why Christianity makes sense, why the the gospel as a theodicy, as an explanation Mm -hmm. for good and evil uh, at all levels makes sense.
1: Well, on the question website Quora, someone asked the question, is the Bible technically a fantasy book with some historical events thrown in? So how do you react to that? Is the Bible just another fantasy novel, the world that Tolkien was drawing on? Is it, is yeah. it just is it fantasy on fantasy?
0: Well, let, let's go back a step and define what fantasy is. So what, what is fantasy? So I think fantasy is a genre. I was thinking fantasy is a combination of Dante and Beowulf sort of mashed together. That's That's the fantasy genre, sort of the monsters right. of Beowulf and the morality of dante that's that's the fantasy genre and so i, I and, it's, and it's deliberately fictional so in that sense the bible is not deliberately fictional mm. but the bible is deliberately symbolic and so it's like dante and it's kind of communicating a, a particular symbolic worldview, and then like beowulf it has monsters and um a struggle between good and evil and it's 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 an exciting story so in that sense the bible is in that same territory or you could say the lord of the rings is an alternative sort of fictionalized version of our world mm. so yeah it's a fantastical explanation of our world it's an alternative mm um creations creation of our world but
1: i suppose as you've as you've just said some people say because the bible does contain you know fantastic beasts and things at different times or supernatural events that it is just actually not actually really historical or connected to reality or it is just a story i mean what are your reactions to that
0: i think the crucial thing that, that the bible makes is because it's this theodicy it's talking about good and evil and monsters and symbolism that you know it's this, this highly symbolic book that the temptation can be oh well it's just purely a created secondary world but i think the
1: a work of fiction
0: yeah, yeah. the provocative it's just like dante you're just reading dante or you're just reading beowulf and, you know you can enjoy and get all the symbolism and from that and all the moral lessons you could get moral lessons from beowulf and dante but the sort of the provocative step in Christianity, the, the step that the Bible takes is it says, well, this is a story of symbolism and monsters, but it's also a, a story that took place. And it's also the same step that you take as a Christian. You say, well, this worldview makes sense, mm-hmm. and it also happened. That's the, the, the Christian theodicy. It's not just a, a useful explanation for good and evil, but it's one that took place in our timeline.
1: Mm. Uh, well, in the Bible, uh, in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, after God has created a man, we hear the narrator describing one of the tasks of this man in Genesis 2, 9, to 20, where it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. So Luke, what's the significance of this, of the man naming animals in this early book of the Bible?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good verse because it's the man, it's Adam as sub-creator. Mm-hmm. This idea is the idea that, that Tolkien used to push Lewis into becoming a Christian because he um, he wrote this poem called Mythopoeia um, yeah. to, to sort of convince Lewis of this idea that God is a creator, we're sub-creators. And there's actually a line in this poem that says, um, man subcreated the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mine to mine. And Tolkien's putting poetically that verse from Genesis chapter two. Adam is mm. naming, he's identifying, he's participating in the story of creation and we do that as, as humans, we create stories, we participate in stories,
1: we're sub-creators. What does it then tell us about our humanity then? I think
0: we're not just rational creatures, we're not just biological creatures, we're sub-creators, where we mimic our creator by creating things, stories, works of mm. art, families
1: and this is connected with the lord of the rings i suppose as the ultimate fantasy book movie or piece of work
0: it's tolkien being a sub creator and encouraging the audience to be their own sub creators as they imagine this world
1: but also that's peter jackson as well is is representing his humanity as well because he's created uh, again showing he's demonstrated that he's a sub creator as well even though he may have disagree with Tolkien's trajectory at points, he's also demonstrated this thing that the Bible's pointing out here about our humanity, that we are sub-creators.
0: Absolutely. He just—he can't help himself. He, as a, as a sub-creator, you know, he's a creative guy. You look at the uh, special effects company he created and it's this, yeah, this impulse to be a sub-creator mm-hmm. and then he's given this material um, and that, that com- combined with his impulse at the time of history, yeah, sort of, sort of a perfect mm-hmm. combination.
1: So, Luke, you obviously enjoy fantasy novels and the work of Tolkien. Uh, What persuaded you that the Bible and that that believing in Jesus wasn't just a fantasy story or another myth? I think
0: it was going back to the theodicy and the historical reality question. I was convinced by the worldview of Christianity. I could see it working in my own life. I could see this worldview scaling up and making Mm. sense of the whole world. But if it was only that, then it would be ultimately hollow. And so the beautiful thing about being a Christian and the thing that convinced me was to see that the storyline that I was participating in was a real story. And I was part of that. And then at another part of the world, a couple of thousand years ago, the crucial event, that you know the defeat of evil, um, you could go to that place and you could look around and you could – see the empty tomb and you could see the roman ruins and you could go this is a this is a real event this gigantic cosmic story is a true story and i'm part of it
1: Mm. so after you've read lord of the rings you've been watched the lord of the rings movies but perhaps a little bit uh, disappointed at times has that enhanced or detracted from your christian faith
0: yeah i'd say the um the lord of the Rings has deepened um and made me more excited it's helped me to understand my christian faith it's helped me to mm. and it also help, helps me to communicate
1: how has it helped deepen your faith
0: i think it's it's helped me feel the symbols of of my faith it's helped me rather than just uh, experiencing as propositions I, mm. I i get to participate In my faith, by Mm. immersing myself in these symbols and thinking about them and talking about them.
1: Mm. So, Luke, why do we
0: create fantasy worlds? I think we create fantasy worlds because we are sub creators. Uh, We mimic our creator and we create worlds. And we also create fantasy worlds because it's a way of thinking about the Odyssey Mm. and thinking about good and evil and the medieval way of thinking so the, the medieval fantasy world is an excellent vehicle for that hmm.
1: well let me leave you with some of the bible's answer to this big question why do we create fantasy worlds from genesis two twenty, so the man gave names to all the livestock the birds in the sky and all the wild animals i look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions thanks very much to our guest today Luke Isham. Thanks, Rob.
0: Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions.